Welcome to Derailed Trains of Thought. Well, welcome back to uh, Drill Trends Thought. This is episode 10. We have reached double digits. We have survived. And Tim, I guess you have also survived. I have. We'll get, we'll get to that in a second. I'll go ahead and introduce myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm Nick Hayden, a.k.a. Matt Cunn the Gambler. And this is Timothy Deal, a.k.a. Robin the Brave. Oh, we both have the... Additions to our names. Yeah, well, mine's a screen name. I don't know what you, about yours. Mine, mine's a role-playing name. Oh, okay. <laughs> I had to throw Gambler in there to be a figure, otherwise no one know what I was talking about. Yeah, that's a screen name I use on the Muppet Central forums. Nice. Yeah, unfortunately, I use, like, the same screen name everywhere. I usually use another one places, which I guess I'll save for another time, but... <laughs> that's probably good. Yeah, I have a dearth of nicknames, actually. Very few people ever gave me nicknames. I'm kind of scrounging around for, uh story-related pseudonyms. Yeah, not very many of the one names I've used are nicknames that were given to me. A lot of them are screen names, or I'm going to use some more role-playing names in a little while. What, what role-playing game was yours from? Uh, mine was uh, one of the few times I actually did some campaigns was in high school. We did some Star Wars. Actually, it was middle school, late middle school. Star Wars RPG. Okay. Before it became part of D20. Oh, right. Like the old West End game version. Yeah, I was like... Somewhere between Han Solo and uh, Matt from Wheel of Time. Nice. So, Tim, I said earlier that you had survived. Yes, I made it through um, comps week last week. It was a perilous time. Well, I made it worse by my own procrastination, really, because I was catching up on some other papers that I needed to turn in. So that right in the middle of when I'm supposed to be writing these you know, long essay uh, response to essay questions that... They gave me that the questions at the beginning of the week, and then I was supposed to have a week to do them. And then, but I was trying to get this other stuff done before I could get that done, and yeah, it was kind of a nightmare. But made it through, uh, thank God. And uh, in spring break now, so that's a very good thing. That is a very good thing. I guess we'll go ahead. Unless you have, do you have anything else interesting to add, Tim? Project wise, no, not really. Let's see, project. Oh, I will mention. I finally finished reading my first book. I meant by the end of January to get through both. On my first two books to read through, I've only read one through February, mm-hmm. but it was it was fun. Um, it feels old and dated to me, <laughs> but the the second book which I've started feels much more modern to me. Which it was written actually like four years after the other, right? And I do have to mention that I also just finished reading a book called The Pun Also Rises, which is a kind of a history and discussion of the role of puns in language and history. That sounds like a fabulous read. It was, and it started out, it was written by one of the winners of the World Championship Pun Off. (laughs) See, puns are underrated by our generation. And he goes into that, about, it's interesting, the science, during the Enlightenment, many of the people didn't like puns, because they confused the language, because they had two meanings simultaneously, and they didn't think that was a good thing. You want to need good scientific words that only mean one thing. Mm -hmm. So I think that's where it started. That's silly. That's so. It's just kind of a form of elitism, almost. I uh, back then it was. I mean, there's all <laughs> kinds of reason. Yeah. I mean, it it was a very intriguing book, which makes me. I am now trying to write another crime and punishment skit, which will hopefully show up on my uh, blog next week. Awesome. Now, 
going back to your books real quick. Yeah. Do you think when you finish the Strin and Fred series that you'll ever want to go back and revise the earlier ones? I don't... I've considered some. I don't think so. I think the revisions would be too drastic. Hmm. It's one of these things where the second book works because everything's established. But the first book, there's nothing wrong with it, per se. But it just came out of a... Me as a beginning writer. I mean, I, I wrote that whole book, the structure of it, when I was a senior in high school. So it's not like a thing where, that you feel like it's going to detract from the unity of the overall story. I don't think so. I mean, there's certainly evolutions. I think it's sort of like TV shows where the first season is good, but then by the time you get to season four or five and they've really hit their stride. That's true. I mean, look at Babylon 5. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like that. And I think anything I would want to revise in it, I'd rather start over and do take the same ideas into a, a different world, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. So, Well, Strinford might come up today as we talk about uh, our topic for Story School, so I'll go ahead and uh, transition to that. All right. Alright, Tim and I have decided to do another kind of back-to-back topic for Story School. This first one is going to be heroes, and next podcast we'll be talking about villains. So Tim, I have a proposal for this discussion that we limit it to actual heroes that are heroic and not just protagonists. Ooh, very nice distinction there. That makes sense. Yeah, let's do that. Because I figure we can tackle anti-heroes and people who are just thrown into things and don't want to be later. But I feel like heroes, by saying that, are people one way or another, characters one way or another, who exemplify something we find noble, good, heroic. I agree. And I feel that heroes are actually very undervalued in pop culture today. You hear sometimes on fan forums... They give more raves for the villain sometimes than it is for the hero. Like, for some reason, because the hero is trying to protect, you know, he's somehow become boring. Whereas the villains, they're like, they're edgy, you know, they're trying to subvert society, and, and we like stuff like that. Whereas the heroes are just, well, they're just trying to, you know, this, what's special about them? You know, they do what every hero does. Whereas I think they're overlooking, and maybe this is just a case of the relative the loosening of morals in society. But I think there's something about heroes that's wonderful in helping us try to become something better than we currently are. No, I agree with that. And, I, and I, I've noticed that villains, people tend to like more. Sometimes, and I don't want to touch it much, I think it's because villains tend to seem more human in sometimes the presentation than the heroes. Mm-hmm. That we understand villains and we would like that sort of, you know, we, we all kind of envy power. And when you have really slick, charismatic villains, we're like, well, that wouldn't be so bad. But heroes sometimes aren't portrayed well. And then sometimes we just, I, I agree, sometimes it's just our, uh, our focus is not always on the building up of virtue. And I think that's a real shame. The other day when I knew we were going to be talking about heroes, I took another look at a blog entry that I had written some time ago where I had talked about watching the original Adventures of Robin Hood movie from the 1930s. And the thing that really struck me about that movie was how perfect, how 
good of a person Robin Hood was portrayed to be. I mean, he was humorous, he was brave, he was courageous, he was friendly, he was noble. He was all these wonderful things wrapped up in one package, and there was nothing good about him. You almost needed sunglasses to, to take a look at, you know, how <laughs> awesome he was. Which some people would say was kind of cheesy, it's not realistic. And sure, no, it's not realistic. But at the same time, there's something really good about it. We mentioned here before how you and I, we really like, sometimes stories should show us not necessarily just how the world is, but more like how it should be. And I think perfect heroes that aren't about big character flaws can be an example of that. They can be the perfect kind of ideal that we really want to live up to. Yeah, and I agree, and the kind of the perfect hero is uh, underrated, and well, and not used much, in, actually, in modern stories. You mentioned the the flaw. It's kind of a rule of thumb that everyone has, that a character, even a good character, needs some sort of flaw to make them feel real and human and identifiable. Mm -hmm. Which I don't know if I'm against, but the way they do the flaws sometimes, it makes them almost not heroic anymore. It's like they're the good guy because they're not the bad guy. Yeah, and I mean, sometimes the flaws can be very effective. I mean, we both really like Spider-Man. You know, Peter Parker is filled with self-doubts and all these things. So there's certainly nothing wrong with that. But the thing is, the hero with the flaws and so forth have become so much the standard these days that people have forgotten how to do the really powerful one or the really good, noble one. I think, uh, talking about the powerful, noble hero, I'm sure you're just uh, jumping the bit to talk about Superman. <laughs> yeah, I've mentioned before that I think Superman is also, doesn't get his fair share. I mean, he's the most identifiable superhero out there, and yet when you talk about superheroes, people, a lot of times they see him as the Boy Scout or old-fashioned or something like that. Even my sisters are that way, which drives me nuts. Superman, growing up, was my superhero. He was like the only one I really followed or knew much about at that time. In a sense, he's very much a God character. And there's something about that that, we'll, that I'll bring up later. But at the same time, I think it's, it's good, especially for young boys, to have this perfect kind of model for us to look up to. And, you know, as we grew up, we realized that the world isn't quite as perfect as as charming as it was at that time. But I think people are sometimes are in a rush to get rid of that whole notion altogether. Like the Superman Returns movie, where it seemed like the only way that we could take this character more seriously, even though they kind of portrayed him as a savior of mankind, was he's going to father an illegitimate child. <laughs> Which completely ruins the whole savior, you know, perfect guy concept. Not not only that, but the whole, like, middle America raising of Clark Kent, which is why Superman's awesome. Yeah. And interestingly, there's kind of a debate with some comic book fans on whether some people see Superman more as Kal-El and, and other people see him more as Clark Kent. It's kind of that whole... Are you a creature of your genetics, or are you a creature of the the situation that you grew up in? I think a better answer is, well, you're kind of created by both. And so Superman, to me, is... I think he probably identifies with his human side more, because that's how he grew up. But I think probably his 
his race is what makes is part of what makes him no, more noble. Although at the same time, you could also argue, and some people have, that his human side is also what makes him more caring and compassionate. And you could argue that. And I'll just throw out right now for a very interesting uh, what if of Superman and his human side and his raising. Um, Russian Sun, the series of comics where he's doesn't land in Kansas but in Russia. Yeah, and he becomes a, a hero for uh, Stalinist Russia is very interesting. It is very interesting because he actually has some of the same motivations except just twisted. That Superman was the perfect socialist or the perfect communist. He was. He was enforcing people to do things the way of the government in order to in order to make the life better, which is what socialism says it wants to do. But it it really just winds up making people's lives, you know, miserable. And yeah, Lex Luthor, oddly enough, is a sort of a uh, odd hero in that story. The way that Lex Luthor kind of converts Superman in a sense is really interesting. Um, I was going to mention oh. You mentioned Boy Scout, and that's always a derogatory sense now. If you're a Boy Scout, then you're not... It's a sense that people, and probably because it was betrayed and portrayed wrongly in some, or badly in some stories, this sense that you always do right and you don't want to do wrong has come off as laughable. You know, because then you you start thinking things like Dudley Do-Right. You know, these goofballs who have no brains who just do what good things because they're mindless, I guess, because they don't, they don't know better. Right. And that's, that's really a shame, because then you have some really good... One of my favorite good, good heroes um, is Sam Gamgee. Oh, yes. Because he's only he just does what he knows is right, mm-hmm. and he's not trying to be a hero, per se. I mean, he's really the main hero of Lord of the Rings. I mean, Frodo is too, but Frodo wouldn't have got very far without Sam. Right, right. I think I read somewhere that Tolkien mentioned that Sam's kind of the real hero. I couldn't be misquoting him. But... I think that idea that you can have someone that's good and even simple, because Sam's simple, and still be just, for lack of a better word, beautiful. Mm-hmm. And very convincing, very realistic, very endearing. And I think it's all in the presentation. And I think writers who don't understand the interest and the the beauty of goodness feel like they have to make their heroes more edgy in order to make people feel like they would actually do something good. You know, sometimes it gets boring where your hero always has some sort of deep need to reconcile with his wife or impress his kid or, you know, just this one, like they're one note characters. Yeah. There's one thing that drives them and it's usually some relationship that went wrong for some reason and everything that he does is because of that one relationship. Okay, realistic people do that, but it doesn't have a deep resonating... um you don't get a sense for who the character is aside from that conflict. Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, too much obsession over one thing is probably not... I mean, there are people, yes, that obsess that way, but the majority of people, probably not. But if you don't mind if I go back to Lord of the Rings real quick. Oh, go for it, yeah. I was thinking while you were talking about Sam, that that's a very interesting case where there's a lot of really strong, good characters in it. And it's interesting, like, take Aragorn, for instance, who is very much the, I guess you could call him a knight in shining armor, almost. Mm -hmm. I mean, he comes from humble appearances. He's just a ranger, so people don't think of him as much. But as it goes on, you see what a noble character he is and what a strong man, a strong warrior he is. And then you compare that to, you know, the hobbits, you know, Sam Gamgee, or even Merry or Pippin, and and Frodo, 
and there's still a very strong inner goodness in them too, but it's of a much more humble type. And even though Lord of the Rings celebrates the mighty, the warriors, and stuff like that, at the same time, it's the hobbits, the little people, that are the real saviors. Um, not that Aragorn isn't, but they're the ones that got rid of the ring. And it is interesting, like you point out, that Tolkien plays at least two different types of heroes, even the more knight in shining armor, Aragorn especially, but you got Legolas and, you know, the more high fantasy characters mm -hmm. against the more humble characters, all the hobbits. You know, Bilbo in The Hobbit's very normal. Mm -hmm. And that he he can show what makes them heroes is not necessarily what sort of hero they are, but they all do have that inner goodness. And none of them really have a particular flaw, per se, except wanting meals too often or you know, bickering with elves and dwarves or something like that. <laughs> I remember getting into an argument sometime, one time with someone from church, or some girl who loved the, the hobbits and Lord of the Rings and all that stuff, but she thought Aragorn was just really cheesy, that this big warrior guy. And it's interesting to me that, I mean, I don't disagree that the hobbits are, are great and that they're the saviors and that the humbleness is very exalted in that, but... I can't discount the other side. I can't discount the warriors. Because, I mean, the Bible has got your humble people too. But David, I mean, David, who was a man after God's, God's own heart, was a warrior who went out and slaughtered like a hundred Philistines in order to collect their skins to <laughs> win a, his fiance. I was actually just reading that last night. He is a man's man. <laughs> yeah, and you're exactly right. I mean, there's all sorts of uh, heroes even in the Bible or other places, and the whole warrior type, there's a reason it resonates with people. And I didn't say anything of importance there. <laughs> I meant to, and then it just lost, I lost it. No, you emphasized my point. So that's exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, because warriors, well, even, and not that I necessarily agree that he's the best example of a hero, the reason Jack Bauer on 24 resonates with many people, because he'll do what needs to be done to get the bad guys. Mm. He doesn't back down. He has none of this whining, oh, I don't know, whatever stuff. Now, granted, the way he tramples on the law and, say, tortures people, I don't... It gets it gets very uh, utilitarian, his worldview. But some of the episodes, he's like, yeah, go get him. It's like watching Die Hard. Yeah, yeah. You know, sometimes you just want the good guy who's outnumbered to just completely whoop all the bad guys. Well, you know, anime is particularly fond of that kind of hero. I mean, you look at Vash the Stampede from Trigun, who, in one sense, people would say his worldview is very naive, very childlike. He's trying to save people without killing anyone. He desperately wants to avoid murder and pain of any kind. But in order to do that, he winds up being like this superhuman... Well, I mean, he is an alien, you eventually find <laughs> out. But he displays, like, the superhuman ability to shoot and survive and do these things. And he's, like, incredible. But it still hurts him terribly over the course of the series, his vow not to kill anyone, but still protect people. And I think that the adherence in Vash is, great, is a great uh, example. The adherence to a higher moral code, mm. I think, is something that makes heroes worth emulating. You know, we might not agree that complete utter pacifism like Vash Sempi is something you actually want to do but you can't help but admire someone who goes to such lengths not to touch anyone's you know not even to harm the hair on anyone's head yeah and do it with such flair too 
<laughs> Definitely. And I think, again, I think that's what we admire about superheroes. Well, anime's versions of superheroes, they don't wear tights, but they still do all these superhuman things, whether it's, you know, the Naruto series where they've got crazy powers or Roni Kenshin where it's godlike speed and swordsmanship. They, all of them have these ridiculous powers, but they use them for very noble and very, very sincere motives. And I think the American version of that would be, well, the superheroes that I think are close to that are the people in the Justice League. The DC superheroes, compared to Marvel, Marvel are, they're, they're fun characters and very politically and socially minded. But DC characters, in a sense, are really like Greek gods. Mm-hmm. Just the kind of the powers that they have and the kind of their motivation for protecting humanity. Well, I, I think you really hit on the good point that just adding cool powers to someone doesn't necessarily make them a good hero. I mean, it makes them a, you know, someone as a character, yes, we're interested because we like people with who are fast or smart or, you know, who are superhuman in some sense. But adding that element of some something higher than themselves they use it for, I think is what re- really makes a hero a step above. Yeah. Well, Tim, I'll ask you and then I'll answer it myself. What sort of heroes are your favorite? Is it the is it the perfect hero or is it something slightly different? I think you've probably Um probably closer to a perfect hero than the than the anti-hero like we said. I mean, man, I, it's hard be hard to describe a perfect one. I can tell you a character that I developed that was kind of trying to go for this kind of perfect hero idea that I have in mind and that would be McCracken. Um, Nick is familiar with him. I've, yes. I, this actually is a great... Yeah, describe me. I think this is a great uh, example of your idea of a hero. McCracken is actually derived very much from these ideas, and it's kind of... My mi- biggest inspirations for him are Spider-Man, Vash the Stampede, and a character called Lupin the Third, particularly from the movie Castle of Cagliostro. Which is a fabulous movie. Yes, it is. <laughs> but McCracken is... Ironically enough, he is a fugitive from the law. He claims he's been framed, but you never really, in the first story that I wrote with him, and actually in so far, you don't really know what he's been accused of. The FBI is after him because they say he's a traitor, but we don't know any more specifics to that. And it's left up to the audience to kind of determine what they think of him. And my vision for McCracken is very much like these characters I've been talking about. He's got a lot of gadgets on his side, and he's very confident in his own abilities and in his own innocence. He maintains that he's innocent the entire time. And he basically goes through his adventures and have as much fun as possible. The first story was basically just about him escaping from the FBI in a church. The second story that I co-wrote with some of our uh, writing friends was about him trying to take out a drug lord in Colombia, just using his talents and then escaping the FBI in the process. He's a character where I feel that what I'm trying to get with him is he's just really fun, kind of a a wink of an in-his-eye kind of adventurer. But uh, he is a Christian. I made a point of including that. He actually always left one of his trademarks. Lupin Third leaves his business card. Well, McCracken leaves a Bible verse, usually for his ex-partner in the FBI, Tony Define, and the idea is it says something about his latest adventures. So I like to write more with him. He's a fun character, I think. Well, and I like the setup with making him, he's on the run, because then you have the, you know, the glamour of being an outlaw, but simultaneously the interest of him 
basically obeying all the laws as he's going around. I mean, he doesn't break laws. He's a good guy, but he's for whatever reason thrown on the wrong side of it. That's true. And I'm I am very fascinated with the idea of a righteous rebellion. Because I, I do believe the Bible says respect the authorities and I think rebellion for the sake of being different than what people tell you to do, I think it's silly. But there's certainly no denying that there is kind of this exciting edge to being, you know, outside of the law, but still doing good. And that's why I like Robin Hood. And that's where I think that you got a lot of inspiration for McCracken. And having mentioned David, I'll just, I also read last night where, you know, David's on the run and he still doesn't manage to kill Saul, even though he has several chances. Yeah. Is that sort of like, look, I really am good. Why do you keep persecuting me? (laughs) Which I think is very at least for me, touches a part of me that says, I really like that, that sort of uh, goodness amidst suffering or injustice. Mm. Mm-hmm. Which, another reason I love Sam, because, you know, especially in Mordor, in that last section, he, he's just good despite everything. You know, despite yeah. Frodo being half insane and no water, no food, and no hope. Well, for a little while anyway, he's still thinking about the trip home. Exactly, and he's like, and he, you know, yeah. So what is your uh, favorite hero, do you My think? Fa- I love the accidental hero. Not necessarily that they're thrown into it, but because of who they are, when they hit, hit certain situations, they can't help but do what they're going to do. The Squire is a perfect example of this, where it's just this young man, he's enlisted to be a Squire, he's really not involved in anything remotely interesting. <laughs> but he swears his oath that he's going to, you know, obey the night, help maidens in distress, right injustice. And then when it happens, he just does it. Even though he's one of the most uninteresting characters in the book. And he gets to a point where he'll even do things despite them being impossible. And I'm like, one of, the, one of the girls he rescues has been recaptured by the thieves. And he goes straight into the thieves' den without, any, you know, just he just walks in. And he's like, <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to do this, I, but it's something I have to do. It just does it. I, I love that sort of humble, not quite your normal hero, but he's a good guy. I mean, he does it because he's a good guy. I love that kind of character, too, particularly when they're kids. I still have a very affectionate feeling toward characters like Jim Hawkins mm-hmm. from Treasure Island or those two kids from Castle in the Sky that they just yeah. got a lot of pluck and they're, you know, they're common kids, but they find themselves in these situations and they just soldier through it. There was this in The Death Gate Cycle by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. There's this uh, character called Alfred, who he's a, p- a powerful magician. But he's clumsy. He just, he's kind of a goon. Um, but he's like insanely powerful. And, and a lot of anime characters do this too. Vash is kind of like that. He's kind of a goon sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> and just that almost being a hero despite yourself idea. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. I channel some of that for Fred from Strin and Fred. Fred sometimes is a hero despite his own personality or selena i mean i have i actually do it quite a bit my Stuart Lim war hero stories i was going to write was going to be about this young man who was just kind of thrown in the middle of this modern warfare it's like it's hard to explain exactly how the work it's more like spiritual warfare well it is yeah except it takes a like physical presence it's it is a bizarre series story and i really would like to see it develop into a series it's hard to explain to people but yeah it's your definition was probably about as close as but he's one of these people that I would envision, you'd use all the old story, all the old action hero sort of 
cliches like car chase himself, but he won't go over the speed limit and he won't lie to anyone. Uh-huh. Actually, and the guy from Squire does this. He doesn't he he doesn't lie when he's sneaking into the thieves guild. He just says the truth and they don't believe him because they're trying to be too tricky. So his truth ends up being enough to get him in. I need to I need to read that. <laughs> and finally, the other and it's he's partly accidental and he's partly like superhuman. The doctor. Oh yeah. He always pulls out a answer at the last minute, like as if he's just winging it. Just to clarify, you mean the doctor is in Doctor Who? As in Doctor Who? Yes. Sorry. Yeah. You know he 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 wings everything, so it seems like he's just at the last minute he just manages to pull everything together. That sort of. I really love the whole last minute everything works out idea too. Like the U catastrophe. Right? The U catastrophe, exactly. And Doctor Who, at least the new series, runs on U catastrophe like constantly. U catastrophe is this idea. I think J.R. Tolkien coined it. I believe so. Where it seems like everything is going to go wrong and at the very last second it all turns out well. I think he called the cross the ultimate U catastrophe. Yes. And that, which is why it's such, I mean, why Tolkien's genius because he could take all these. Idea than write a good story that doesn't draw attention to any of it. Yeah, yeah. Now I think it's worth pointing out, particularly since we've been t- we were just talking about the Doctor. One possible drawback with these characters who are really powerful yet really good is that sometimes when people write them, they can kind of become an idol in a sense. And by that I mean they become. It's like let's take the Doctor for instance particularly toward the end of David Tennant's run, they were really running with this idea of him being this godlike character. I he mean, was a lonely was, god, yeah. Lonely god. And the thing is, sometimes I feel like that kind of character is what people, particularly interesting since those Doctor Who stories were written by an atheist, sometimes I feel like people use that type of character to create a god that is satisfactory for them. He's a god that they can understand. He's not, He's a tame lion, if you will, where, sure, he's got all these powers and he can save people in situations like that, and we can love him for that, but he's still got these foibles. He's still got all these things that, oh, he's like us. You know, Doctor may be old and ancient, but he's funny. He's silly at, at times, and so that's... He's a, he's a tame god, which, in one sense, it's nice that they're. I don't know that they they even realize that that's what they're doing, uh, and maybe in a certain sense they could be pointing them toward the real god. But at the same time, I think we have to be really careful that it doesn't take the place of a real god. If that, that makes is, sense. That no, that is a really good point because in theory, you know, if you and I's idea of heroes is that it's supposed to lift us up towards emulating these things. At, at least from a Christian point of view, all they're revealing are little snippets of God, mm-hmm. as opposed to trying to replace it. You know, and and I think you're right. Some people want to make a hero that they can, they think is basically the, you know, the next evolution of humanity. Yeah, this is what we're going to become. Is, yeah, exactly. Or or even sometimes saying that flaws are okay because through the flaws we become better. Mm-hmm. Which is okay, true. To a certain extent on this world, because God can use bad things to create, you know, for good purposes. But to think that flaws are always necessary is, well, wrong, but it's, it's easy to fall into that trap because of the way we don't know any better yeah. from this side of heaven. And also there's the fact that we can place these restrictions on this powerful character because, you know, he's enough like us that he has to follow the same guidelines. But at the same time, 
there are rules that apply to mankind that shouldn't apply to God. And I think it's harder for modern society to understand that. Well, that's why we get stories about Jesus marrying Mary Magdalene, having a kid, yeah, and yeah. stuff like that. Because you, you, a human mind doesn't want to have someone who's over top of you and perfect. They want everyone on level. They want to, you know, because no one likes to have someone in charge of them. From two years old on, we say, you're not the boss of me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not quite related to heroes, but actually, it is. It is. It's an important caveat to what we've been saying about these really strong ones. And I don't know that it's necessarily the Christian's job to write a character with absolutely no flaws. This may sound like I'm contradicting what I said <laughs> earlier, but, but I'm really not. I mean, even McCracken, he admitted himself that he's probably more of a romantic and probably... He admits sometimes that he's probably a little more, um, I want to say, carefree, I guess, than perhaps he should be. But, I mean, he recognizes himself that he's under a moral you know, authority. And, and like I said, I made sure that he was a Christian and that he followed certain guidelines. So I think it's a delicate balancing act, trying to create someone that is really good and that we want to emulate, but is not taking God's place. And actually, the the Superman and the McCracken remind me also, sometimes what really, this is vaguely unrelated, sometimes what really works for creating heroes, if you want to give them a flaw, you give them a flaw that makes us love them more. <laughs> you know, yeah. if you want to say Superman has a flaw besides Kryptonite, it's that he loves, he wants to fix everything. Yeah. McCracken, maybe he enjoys his, you know, his adventures a little too much. Mm-hmm. That sort of thing. You know, the sort of flaws that... We we know it's not probably the best thing, but we can't help but think, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you're, you're completely right that there is that caveat. And as a Christian writer, you want to have heroes that people can emulate, but aren't going to uh, lead them astray one way or another. But you only have so much control over them. But you have to write but from it, your own. From, from, you have to be okay with it from what you know, how you're writing it. yeah. And the overall story that you're writing can make a big difference in that sense, too. I don't think that Gandalf or Aragorn or any of those powerful characters would... I mean, they're very humble in what they do, and they realize they're part of something bigger. So that makes a big difference, too. I think that's why I like the accidental hero, because of the, the they tend to be humble one way or another. They don't they don't feel like they belong there. Actually, I just re, uh, revised slightly uh, the Isle of Gold. At the end... The main character's like, I didn't do anything. Why do you guys keep congratulating me? <laughs> because he kind of saved a whole island mm. by accident. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big thing. I think I like doing that because I think it is from my Christian worldview. I think this idea that providence, that God uses us if, we're, if we'll you know, be where he wants us to be and obey his commands. But sometimes when you do that, when something happens, you're like, but I didn't do that. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I really enjoy having my heroes interact with this idea of providence. Actually, Squire is a big, big one of that, too. And Sir and Fred will be some, actually, in book three and four. I write the same story over and over again, basically. <laughs> That's common. That's common, yeah. We should after probably wrap this ending, up somehow. Yeah, after, after you, I always have this thing, you wrap it up, and then I come up with something else. <laughs> um, so we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Don't be afraid of writing some really good heroes in your character or in your story, and don't feel that they have to play second fiddle to the villain's schemes, because the hero is just as important, and perhaps more so. Tim, I couldn't have said it better. <laughs> Next, then, we'll go to our first soundtrack. 
All right, Tim, you want to start us off with something new? Yeah, my soundtrack choice this week is is new in the sense that it's actually not from a video game in any way, which I think might be a first on the show for soundtracks. This is from the band called Master Plan, which I don't know that anyone who doesn't familiar with anime has ever heard of, because <laughs> um, I think they're from Europe. But this song itself is called Heroes. It's from their album called Heroes. We're only going to play a segment for you because we don't have rights for the full song. But since this is a review, I can say that it's really good. And uh, yeah, take a listen to this side for yourself. It's a really rocking song, so I hope you enjoyed it. All right, our next section will be Cinema Selections with Brian Scherschel. All right, it's been a, a little bit since we've had our last uh, interview with Brian Scherschel with Double Indemnity. This week, uh, Brian and I discussed Notorious by Alfred Hitchcock. Brian is very, very, very fond of Alfred Hitchcock, and we had a very long conversation about Hitchcock and his history and his methods and his style, all of which is recorded and I will try to put out in a sidetrack for those who wish to know more. But for the sake of this podcast, um, I cut down to a 
more manageable size, focusing on the movie Notorious, starring um, Ingrid Bergman, I forgot everyone else. And Cary Grant. Yes, thank you! <laughs> Star starring Ingrid Bergman and Cary Grant. I really enjoyed this movie, I recently saw it, and I think you'll find the interview interesting. Alright, hello everyone. This is um, back here with Brian Scherschel to talk about a movie he's very fond of and which I had a chance to watch recently and I am now also very fond of it. Notorious by Alfred Hitchcock. I guess, Brian, go ahead. I know you have a lot to say about this film. Uh, give us kind of a, some basic intro into Hitchcock in general. Uh, good to be back. Let's see. Alfred Hitchcock is definitely one of my favorite directors, although I, had, I do have quite a few. Hitchcock is known as the master of suspense. Notorious and many other films also, though, they show that he's also a master of romance. And that's one thing that I definitely want to try to get across. And this is a great example. He made 53 films in his entire career. First one in 1927, and the last one was in 1976. He was born in 1899 and died uh, in 1980. When Hitchcock started his career... He worked under German Expressionist, that kind of school of directors and filmmakers. Can you go ahead and define uh, and, German Expressionism yeah. for those who might not know? Yeah, uh, the German Expressionism, the, the height of German Expressionism was uh, given from about 1919 to 1931, and that was sort of the golden age of German film. And German Expressionism, the, at least the technique, a lot of it is about working within the frame, and it's all about framing, photographing, lighting, and the importance of, the, of, an, of an object, or the importance of the object that's on the screen. And in many ways, it's a style about space more than it is about time. Let's go ahead and introduce our audience to uh, basically the, the summary of Notorious, so they have some idea of what the storyline is. Yes. Uh, Notorious is from 1946... Ingrid Bergman is notorious, and meaning that she is known widely and in a generally unsavory and or unusual way. Her character's name is Alicia Huberman. Uh, her father is a German who recently was convicted of treason against the United States for helping out the Nazis during World War II. This is, of course, 1946. It's the year right after the war ended. So he's been convicted of treason, and her life is out of control. In the original story for Notorious, her character was, in fact, a prostitute. And instead of that, because of the code and, and the way that the code made movies kind of conform to a certain moral, you know, within certain constraints, instead the story just refers that she has a lot of conquests, that it obviously implies that she's sexually loose, and uh, she is also a heavy drinker, and she has trust issues with men. So there are some of the negative aspects that make her notorious. In the way that Hitchcock casted Bergman, he subverted Ingrid Bergman's type. He casted her against type. Her type is what? Usually the, the character that she played in Casablanca, a uh, forthright and sober person. Uh, that that is her persona, and that was her persona uh, as far as the way she was depicted in films before Notorious. Can I go back, please? Have another drink. No, thank you. I've had enough. 
No true, we're still set Well, do you hear that? I'm practically on the wagon. That's quite a change. It's a phase. You don't think a woman can change? Sure. A change is fun. For a while. For a while. What a rat you are, Kevin. All right. You've been sober for eight days. And as far as I know, you've made no new conquests. Well, that's something. Eight days. Practically whitewashed. I'm very happy there. Why won't you let me be happy? The next character is T.R. Devlin, played by Cary Grant. Cary Grant is, of course, handsome, charming, immediately likable. He almost never played a villain. I don't think he ever played a villain in any movie in his whole career. He is. This is about the closest one because he plays a, definitely a morally ambiguous character, but he's definitely not. A, he's definitely not the villain. Cary Grant is known for playing sympathetic characters. And so Hitchcock is also subverting Cary Grant's persona by making his character an FBI agent, T.R. Devlin, a name which denotes what? Devil or devilish. His mission is to convince Alicia to help the FBI to uncover the lead financier of, of Nazis who have escaped to Brazil. And the lead financier is Alex Sebastian, who is played by Claude Rains. Her job is to go in and win over Alex Sebastian, who she was at least familiar with because of his connections to her father. Devlin is not an all-good or all-bad character either. He's secretive, he has issues with women, and in this story he has to use Alicia in order to get what the FBI wants. Cary Grant's character also puts up fronts of being self-possessive as kind of a defense mechanism. So Hitchcock has taken a masterfully graceful character and made his character rather static, morally paralyzed, and silent in a film noir kind of way. This film isn't exactly a film noir in the classic sense, just because there's so much romance involved, there's so much suspense involved, there's so much every, everything else involved. The last thing with Cary Grant is how well he reacts as well as his acting. His reacting is great to watch in this film. Hitchcock said that the only actor that he truly ever loved was Cary Grant. The third character is uh, Claude Rains. Claude Rains plays the, a very perfect Hitchcockian villain in this film. He's classy, he's refined, he's, at the same time, he, he has a lot of other negative things. And while Claude Rains is the, is the officially sanctioned villain in Notorious, he's not all good or all bad e either. He's helping escaped Nazis, and he's funding them, but that's it. He's just funding them, and he's not obviously as deep in as he could be, like, a la you know, Schindler's List or, or some, you know, some of the horrific characters that came out of that. He's in a fix as well in this movie, and uh, hopefully the Nazis' stigma doesn't get too much in the way of the fact that you can see the complexity in, in his character as well. You know, my dear, I knew this was going to happen. I knew when we met the other day that if I saw you again, I'd feel what I used to for you. Same hunger. You're so lovely, my dear. Now I'm going to make a fool of myself again. Someone else, of course. Who is it this time? Is that Mr. Devlin you were with? 
some of the redeeming factors that he has include the fact that he unconditionally loves. He's the one in the movie who does unconditionally love. He's also a victim of the FBI's plot. So, And there are various other qualities that he has and characteristics that he can, in a way, win over the audience, even in a role like this, which is interesting. And so all three of the main characters in this in this film aren't they aren't all good they aren't all bad and that's life as well I mean that's a lot of what life is too and so it's a very relatable movie. So the characters are obviously very Hitchcock with their ambiguity and their light and dark mixed. What other I guess fingerprints of Hitchcock's uh, show up in this movie? He gives importance to objects. With German expressionism, the best thing to do is to give a threatening or a, a big amount of meaning, at least, to an object. And the more mundane the object, the better. And so it would be finding an object that is visual, palpable, and tangible. And then you give that object enormous stature, point, and meaning. When you see this movie, you can very easily pick out the objects that you did that with, especially one in particular. Yes, with the key. And then and then the other big object is with uh, a bottle of wine. And it is amazing how much emotion is attached to those two things. I mean, whole, the whole plot at that point ro- revolves around those two things. Yes, and the symbolism, is, the symbolism of these objects carries a great weight as well. Another thing Hitchcock did was that he gave architecture thematic value. And the house that Notorious takes place in is the perfect house to give all of that meaning to because the house is huge. It's full of rooms. It almost is like the world of Alice in Wonderland and that you just keep going trying to find what you're looking for. Hitchcock was also great with staircases and Notorious. It possibly has the biggest staircase sequence in any of his films, but he loved staircases in his films and the symbolism that they that we were attached to. Um, you've been talking about the house and the staircase and how uh, everything's planned out, all the scenes are just right. I know that there's a scene that you really enjoy, this very long zoom um, that actually in, incorporates the object that he's using, the key, and then the you know the kind of the size of the house. So if you want to maybe talk about that briefly, because I know that's a big Hitchcocking scene there. Yes, that shot is a it's a combination dolly slash moving shot, and it starts is all the way up at the top of of this big room, right above, way above the staircase, and then it keeps zooming in, and and the dolly keeps going forward, and it goes all the way down the room. It's a it's a very long, sweeping, lyrical movement of the camera. So we're going from an extreme long shot to an extreme close-up. But he goes all the way from the top of the room all the way down to a key in Ingrid Bergman's hand. Now, the technology for this kind of shot did not even exist. They actually built a wooden track for the camera to be on so that it could actually go down that far. So the technology hadn't even existed for this kind of shot up until this point. That was how radical and how forward Hitchcock was with the way that he envisioned things in his head. He had, when he made films, he had everything in his head practically before the film 
actually started being produced. So yeah, so that shot incorporates a lot of Hitchcock. You know, you got the object, you have the the technical shot that's never been done before. And mixing in, you have thematic value at the same time. Exactly. And it is a very, I mean, I didn't, I remember it now. I didn't quite catch it at the time because I'm just so engrossed in the movie the first time watching it. I'm not paying attention to how things are happening. But I do remember that the, the ending shot of that with the key being very imprinted on my mind. I know another thing this movie's at least vaguely and famous for is for uh, the way Hitchcock skirted the Hayes Code. What was the Hayes Code? It was a moral code for films that was brought in. I believe this brought was brought in in the 30s, I want to say at some point. The creator of it was a man named Will Hayes. It was all about making sure that movies were kept in check as far as just the moral codes of the time. And so that's why you have a restriction on the amount of time that two characters can kiss on screen. The rule for the Hayes Code was that a kiss could last no longer than 30 seconds. At 30 seconds, kissing went from romantic to unseemly. And that was just the built-in definition. What Hitchcock did was that he skirted the Hayes Code in a very interesting way, which ended up becoming legendary Hollywood history kind of material. What he was able to do is he was able to extend the on-screen kiss to about 2 minutes and 45 seconds. The way that he did that was, and this is the balcony kissing scene between Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman. And so it starts out, they start, they kiss, and then they, they break the kiss. And then they ins- then inserted his little bit of dialogue, like what they're going to you know, make for dinner and just various little things like this that really are innocuous. And then they go back to the kiss and then release the kiss and then back again and back and forth. It's nice out here. Let's not go out for dinner. Let's stay here. We have to eat. Mm-hmm. What you need here, I'll cook. I thought you didn't like to cook. No, I don't like to cook. But I have a chicken in the icebox, and you're eating it. What about all the washing up afterwards? We'll eat it with our fingers. Do we need new plates? Yes. One for you and one for me. Do you mind if I had dinner with you tonight? I'd be delighted. It's interesting, I watched this movie with my wife, and she's always a little suspicious of black and white movies, just because, and she, there's some that she enjoys, but she's always suspicious of them, and she really enjoyed this movie, and we were talking about afterwards, it's interesting, with as much sexual tension as is in the plot, you don't see anything, I mean, this kind of extended kiss, what always impressed me with Hitchcock is how much is implied, it seems like almost half the plot's just implied beneath the surface. At least half the plot. Yes, and that's one reason why his films are so... Why the watchability of his films is so high. Because it's almost like you're discovering like a second track or so, you know, of, of a completely... At least a second, not yeah, a third. not a third or fourth. <laughs> like with Vertigo, it ends up being like a third or fourth track of just meaning and, and deepness that's put in there that you have to just keep thinking through. But Notorious is also great, as are most of his other films, with repeatability. So, Brian, I know I know that you really enjoy this movie, and I really enjoyed watching it, and then there's a lot of... It's kind of iconic Hitchcock. It's This is a good window into his style, into the types of movies he makes. 
how would you sell this in like a in a quick spiel to someone? This movie is about the crime of thinking that you're not worthy of love and the importance of trusting that you're worthy of love. Love and falling in love is in fact a matter of suspense. And that's probably the best thing that I can think of to characterize this movie. So that was Brian and I talking about Notorious. Really fabulous movie. My wife is always a little suspicious of black and white movies when we when I make her watch them. Oh, Nick, you need to cure her of that. Uh, well, that's why I'm, that's why I show her good ones. <laughs> but good. she really enjoyed this one. Um, and I know Tim, you plan on watching it soon. Yeah, I've seen parts of it. Actually, there was a particular scene in there that was used as a case study in one of my directing classes last year. So which. which it was a scene where Carrie Grant had to tell her that um, what they wanted her to do, like she was getting ready to have a nice dinner with him, and he came in all depressed because he was going to have to tell her to go go on this mission. And it was very, it was kind of a shot by shot study, and really um, an amazing kind of look, eye opening for me, and how much pre production planning has to go into where you're setting your camera and what he was communicating by setting up different camera positions and movements and stuff like that. So I've been looking forward. I've been, I really should have watched it by now since that class was like a year ago. But uh, Brian sent me a, a DVD of it, and he was very kind of that. So uh, hopefully I'll maybe even watch it by the time this episode gets premiered. Sounds good. Well, Tim, I guess that's about the end of this uh, podcast. We've been trying to shorten our podcast a little bit. Tim's very busy finishing up school. And I'm busy teaching and working and other such things. So, yeah, we might start seeing some shorter podcasts here. Um, We're certainly always going to have our story school segment. That's kind of our meat and bones or meat and potatoes, however you say it. (laughs) Um, So we'll certainly always have that. But Our liver and onions? I don't think so. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this second half of the show you might will probably start being shorter, which honestly may not be a bad thing. <laughs> so if you want to get a hold of us, um, you can always come to derailedtrainsofthought.blogspot.com, which is our main website. You can also email us at derailedtrains at gmail.com. And you can also contact either Tim or I on Facebook. Or uh, if you really want to go the three, five degrees of separation, you can go to uh, my website, worksofnick.com, and uh, find a link there usually a week after I post the original <laughs> podcast. And hopefully sometime I'm going to be getting my own website pretty soon. Make sure you uh, bug me about that because it's oh. like I want to I set up my own sites for uh, particularly for job hunting purposes. <laughs> awesome. That would be fabulous. Yeah. So um, next time I will hopefully have my first ebook out. I'm, I'm trying to practice. I, I want to test the ebook waters. Ooh, so I might do Isle of Gold as an ebook for like 99 cents. See what happens. I know you and some of our writing friends have been planning an ebook uh, project together, which. I'm a bit too busy to really uh, pitch in on that, but I'm excited to see what you guys come up with. It should be very interesting. I'll keep uh, the audience up to date on that. It'll be it'll be a number of months yet. We're just in planning phases. It'll be a short story collection from uh, a number of our of my writing friends and I. Cool. So, uh, well, I guess I'll go ahead and uh, bow out by uh, introducing the last soundtrack for this episode, Overclock Remix, which I listen to too often. 
um, recently released an album called Heroes vs. Villains, which I thought were great with our current topics. And it was basically 10 games where one person would remix the hero's theme, one would remix the villain's themes, and it's kind of like a head-to-head -head combat sort of idea. A lot of really good songs, but I've been very addicted to this, this one I want to play for you, which is The Life and Death of Kirby, um, remixed by Insert Rupee, which I believe is made up of Halk and Benjamin Riggs. Um, they tend to write a lot of chip tune music, but they took Kirby's theme, which I don't really know, it made it very aggressive and just a lot of fun to listen to, at least if you like this style of music, which I do. It's a good song. Kirby's Dreamland, which is, I think, the first Kirby game which was released on Game Boy. It was actually, I think, the first video game that I ever fully beat. Oh, nice. I have never actually played a Kirby game. Yeah, they can, uh, that's, I think that's the only one I've actually done. I've seen some other ones, but... People really like them. Yeah. So uh, I hope you enjoy that. Um, so we'll sign out. Yeah, we made it through our... 10th episode, Nick. All right. Congratulations, Sim. Only uh, 90 more to hit three digits. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing that we've come this far. It really is. Before we were like, what's Skype and how does it work? <laughs> Not that long ago. That's true. Well, this has been Nick. And this is Tim. Adios. See you next time. Thank <laughs> you.